Welcome to Investor Insights, the wealth management podcast where we address investor needs, help you enhance your financial situation, and explore all parts of a person's financial life. And now, the host of Investor Insights, Mike Williams. Hello, it's Mike Williams here at Genesis, and I wanted to thank you again for joining us for this podcast. Uh, Today's uh, podcast is going to be called uh, Why Not Market Timing? So, Here's the deal. After recent market events to kick 2016 off, I just wanted to let everybody know in case you needed this. Um, it took a lot of work, but I've tracked down every single license plate from the fleet of trucks full of black swans, I might add, which have been hitting us repeatedly this year. Any investor knows what I mean. Uh, and the good news? Sure, there's plenty, but no one believes it's real. I can admit to you that this quarter I have seen more double-digit down openings over literally minor crimps in earnings report that I can recall seeing in my life. Uh, I would be remiss if I did not sort of remind you, though, that you can't be fooled by this action. Human beings don't make a stock move that fast in literally moments. I admit that it makes my skin crawl for the average investor to watch a guidance report be released with a headline timestamp of, say, 11 minutes after 4 on some Tuesday afternoon during earnings season, and literally by one minute later, the stock of XYZ is down 22%. Seriously, call it what you will, Listen to as many reports as you'd like, but this is not human trading actions. Algorithms, computer trading, high-frequency traders, whatever you want to call them, those computer-driven processes basically run the show after markets close. They literally have their algorithms running through headlines and running stops within seconds of even the word miss in the headline. For example, if a company misses by a penny and 78 seconds later the stock is down 22%, I can promise you that is not human beings. I hope soon the SEC begins to understand what high-frequency traders are really doing. I think it's appalling that it allows them to take advantage of the public in ways that have made internal market churning processes far more volatile than A, they used to be, or B, they need to be. It's kind of like the mark-to-market plague during the 08-09 collapse when unnecessarily required items chewed up so many bank balance sheets that had they been allowed to permit the process and the emotion to unfold and then let the market recover, many bank balance sheet perceptions would not have been the same. So anyway, glad I got that off my chest. I like to talk about, uh, I've often written this at important lows uh, in the past, and I've talked about it on past podcasts. I'm going to read through some thoughts about what your mind goes through as the four signs of a bottom 
So I, I see it as four stages of fear that are generally attached to a low in markets during corrective actions. Now keep in mind, you don't recognize these things until after they're done and your mind won't permit you to recognize them as valuable until often you see them in the rearview mirror. So uh, I, I, I preface that with this. So the stage one is when you ask yourself, where's my screwdriver? That's the feeling that begins to seep into your mind as you look at the newsreel, you're blinded by the devastating headlines, and then you recall that your windows in the office do indeed open, but you need a screwdriver. So stage two is you say to yourself, well, how the hell did it get there? This is when you finally are pushed to find the screwdriver. Usually after you have just heard more of the never-ending terrible news streaming off of your screen, iPhone, iPad, computer, whatever. But screwdriver in hand, you can't believe how quickly the first three screws came out of that window frame holding it closed. Stage three is the damn it's cold out here stage. Uh, this is the stage where you find yourself grasping at the concrete edge of the ledge with your fingers, calculating in your mind how many dollars your account is down today. You say to yourself, geez, at this pace, it will only take another 14 months to be at zero. As you begin to realize just how cold it is in the winter in Chicago, outside, on the ledge, looking all the way down to your carport some 12 feet below. Stage four, this is when you're convinced the world really is ending. This time it's different. The, the headlines were right. You close your eyes and relive all those headlines, all the guys who said black swans were real, all the guys who said they knew the top was in when X. And then just as you feel yourself leaning forward, sure to crash onto your lawn in moments, you think of one more smart move, one more idea that is sure to cause you to turn the corner. What's that idea? You decide to be a market timer. Many feel it. Bearish sentiment has soared. We have fewer bullish investors now in all the various sentiment polls than we have had in the last two bear market lows. One of those lows was about 13,000 points lower than where the Dow is now. The other low is about 9,500 points lower than where we are now. The experts selling you that fear are clear. The new bear market is here. Get out while you still can. The perils of market timing grasp everyone during these periods. Hey, I can just sell now and get back in lower. I'm here to tell you after 32 years of doing this, that will not happen. I can miss all the carnage and then just buy when the coast is clear. I have a hint for you. The coast only looks clear at higher prices. After a usually sizable rally that, quote, shouldn't have ever really happened at all, unquote. I repeat, beware the perils of market timing. I cannot possibly stress this enough. And there is a ton of history 
that helps on this if you need it. Anytime the market experiences sudden, sharp selling pressures, like we've seen over the last few weeks, two things almost always happen. Number one, bearish sell-everything headlines and stories appear everywhere. And two, investors under, undergo the behavioral process of strongly considering selling their stocks. Or worse, they actually do it. Don't get me wrong, I know how it feels. Each time we see the market plunge and stops are run and a rally fails and that two-day bounce turns into a three-day sell-off, I know how you're feeling. I've done it long enough. I get it. Thankfully, thankfully, we came into this one with a lot of cash. But look, we were, we were wanting to be patient. We were wanting to understand the impact of that measly little interest rate. We talked ourselves into this. The crowd feared it so much, it became self-fulfilling. Look, it's understanding why these reactions hang around downside volatility like pests. The media knows it's an easy road to viewership and the crowd turns the fight or flight survival instinct on often without ever really even knowing it. Most just think, hey, I want, and in some cases I need, to take action to stop the bleeding and quote, protect myself. This is when our Fantasies get run over by fears and we paint the future fear on the horizon as though it's going to happen. Every single low is set when that last person leaves. It is said market lows witness empty trains leaving the station, while market tops have cars loaded to the gills going off the cliff. And yes, I know, hearing all that right now after these last six weeks or so is enough to make you angry. I feel the same, which means it's working. Emotions are tugging at us, fooling us into believing something we cannot see, fear. By the way, have you ever noticed in a move to the upside at the very same pace and distance as a downside move covers, the term volatility is never used to describe it. Back to the point. The moment an investor capitulates is the moment that investor becomes a market timer. And what has history taught us about even the very best quote-unquote market timers? Here's what it's taught us. It's blunt. They get it wrong way more often than they get it right. So why do investors choose this path? It's mental. It's emotional. It's been stated often, but here it goes. Our emotions and brains are electrically charged to abhor losses more than twice as much as we rejoice in gains. And that emotional imbalance often gets the better of us. We fool ourselves into thinking the best way to prevent more losses and remove uncertainty is to sell. History shows us this is one of the great jokes of investing in stocks. Why? Well, history proves that it almost always means we will be out of the market for the gains that follow sell-offs. Here's the kicker. No one can ever know with certainty when the market will rise or fall. We can plan, we can project, but we don't know. We always have to be in sync with that fact. 
However, the crowd feels a decision to liquidate assets under the presumption that they'll be able to reinvest once again as stocks resume their rise is fantasy. It's flawed. The mindset is incorrect. History proves otherwise. Repeatedly, year after year, correction after correction. Let's talk about that fallacy in numbers. Longtime podcast listeners and readers of our notes have heard me reference this often before. As much as it feels good to embark on the fantasy that we can somehow get this done with no pain, the data, history, and numbers prove this thought to be dreadfully wrong. In a study conducted by Dalbar covering a period from 1995 to 2014, the following data show the annualized returns by asset class relative to the average investor. Stocks have returned 9.9%. All the tough parts, all the good parts, the bear markets, the horrible corrections, all of it. If you just stayed the course, 9.9%. Bonds, you know how tough everybody calls bonds. They're safe. They're wonderful. They make you feel good. Well, guess what? They've earned 6.2%. International stocks, you remember that. International stocks are where you got to be. Emerging markets, that's where you got to be. 5.0%. Inflation has been right over 2%. Now, in all those data points, 9.9% on stocks, 6.2% on bonds, international emerging markets, 5.0%, inflation just a little over 2%. Do you want to guess what the average investor has received in those 20 years? 2.5%. 70% lower than what the market actually produced. The primary issue the investor crowd faced? You might be wondering. You guessed it. Market timing. Under the fallacy of selling what is not working and buying what is working, investors were switching in and out of funds at the most inopportune times. After two bear markets in the last 15 years, it's easy to fall prey to this, I know. Believe me, I live it every day. But as Dalbar shows, the process hurts investors and not by a small margin. What happens when we try to market time? We we eradicate that pain when we sell and capitulate. Of course, we make it sound much better in our own mind. We're being smart. We're being prudent. We're protecting ourselves but I preface this next section with the understanding that it's, hard, it's, it's a hard emotion to fight. It's very, very difficult. Fear paints the future dark black, and it's very hard to see around it at the most inopportune times. But listen to this. Being out of the market on just the 10 best days during that 20-year period can kill long-term compounding. I mean, literally destroy it. It's why you either go into a correction with cash and are prepared to use it at lower prices, or you ride it out for the long term, which, as noted earlier, 
is the only way to obtain long-term equity returns. Data show that using the returns of the S&P 500 from January 3, 1995 through the end of 2014, covering both of those bear markets, all of the horrible stuff around 9-11, three different recessions, multiple administrations, $10,000 invested for that 20-year period would have grown to about $65,000 plus or minus $500, which is that 9.9% annualized rate of return. But here's the key. Here's what happens to that very same $10,000 when you start missing the up days because you have timed the market. If you missed the 10 best days during that 20-year period, now, look, if you think you're smart enough to pick the 10 best days during the 20-year period, you certainly don't need to be listening to this podcast. So, let's be realistic. If you missed the 10 best days instead of 65000 you ended up with 32000 If you missed the 20 best days, mind you, I'm talking about a 20-year period period. If you missed the 20 best days, your $65,000 pot of gold turned into 20300 bucks. And if you missed the 30 best days, that great number of 65 grand turned out to be $13,446, less than a 1.5% rate of return. And it turns negative from there. Some investors might say, yeah, Mike, I get it, but what about being out of the market on the 10 worst days? That would also produce a higher return. However, getting that decision right probably means sacrificing most or all of the good days you need to produce the higher return. Get this, six of the 10 best days of those 20 years occurred within two weeks of the worst 10 days. Let me read that again. Six of the 10 best days occurred within two weeks of the worst 10 days. It's arguably much easier to participate in the good days than to avoid the worst days. The stock market rises a lot more than it falls. Therein lies the truth that is terrible, but also somewhat mind-bending, but it's also relaxing if you really understand it. In order to realize long-term annualized growth rates, you have to stick with stocks when it's ugly, like now, through the good times and the bad. As we have stated often before, investors assume risk in order to obtain long-term reward. Without risk, there is no reward. Period. Believing otherwise is you simply believing in a fantasy. So what's the bottom line? Don't market time. I know it's tough. Plan first. Set standards. We've repeated this often. Cash is there for your short-term goals and needs. For long-term wealth-building foundations, one must be able to take the good with the bad in order to get 
the long-term returns we always note and read about. Blind bullishness is not the intended point here, but the reality is this. For most investors with a good plan and advisor, long-term returns offered by equities are what is required to meet your financial objectives throughout your lifetime. And that is the goal in the end of the game, right? Listen, I hope these thoughts have been helpful. Thanks again for your time. Join us for our next podcast. Until then, may your journey be grand and your legacy significant. Have a great day.